Well, I'm just going to start with prayer because that's a good place to begin. Father God, thank you just so much for this message. I believe that it is um, timely, it's important, it's instructive, and that we've got so much to learn from your word that we will never spend enough time in it to learn everything there is to know. And so, Lord, I just really ask that you would um, just supercharge my words um, with your Holy Spirit, that I would be uh, following your guiding, uh, and then that uh, it would just really be touching hearts um, tonight. Thank you so much that no matter what circumstances throw at us, there's always a way of meeting with you. And we're still meeting with each other. And I'm so grateful for that. So I'm really glad that you can tune in and we can really dive deep into uh, the, the story of Moses and his law. My name's Anna Van Stralen and I've been a long time attendee at Door of Hope. It's my home and I love it. And I'm going to be speaking to you about uh, the decrees of God, the Old Testament, the New Testament, and how they all fit together. And also the kind of doubts that you might have when looking at them next to each other. The continuities and the discontinuities can create an amount of confusion, and I'd really love to go into that space with you tonight and really look at what it means to be keeping the law and to be looking into the law. So Deuteronomy 4, chapter 40 Keep his decrees and commands which I am giving you today so that it may go well with you and your children after you and that you may live long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. First, I want to spend a moment talking about humanity and where we are at the moment as a whole collective. Our current identity is made in God's image still, created to do good works still, created to know God and to be in relationship with him. We are made fundamentally glorious. What an amazing beginning place to begin our story. But long ago, we chose in the garden the wrong path. We wanted to make the rules. We wanted to be the boss, to be in charge of our own choices. We chose death over life. And since then, humans have gone hungry. They have toiled hard over meager pickings. We've fought with our neighbors and rebelled against God. We are at the same time as being magnificent cre creations of the Most High God, tragically wretched. The Bible tells us who we are and who God is and mirrors back to us this dual space that humanity finds itself in. So that's where we're at. What is God doing about it and what has he already done? Where is his solution in that? And how trustworthy is the Bible that tells us of it? So here we come to Moses and ultimately God's own son, Jesus. But I'm getting ahead of myself, so we'll jump back into the Bible, where after a long, miserable time as slaves under their Egyptian masters from the nation of the new kingdom, the Israelites are rescued by God out of Egypt and into the desert to worship him. Moses is their leader at this time, and through him, God gives him uh, Israel the law a kind of national constitution, the outline of the life they'd lead in the land that God was going to give them. It's outlining what Israel is to respond with from what God has done for them. He brought them salvation from a very, very terrible state. And while Israel was asked to respond, God was also unfolding the continual fulfillment of his own promises to them. The Old Testament law is the human side of the covenant, the agreement that God made with Abraham and his descendants. 
The Old Testament can be confusing. It can be difficult, upsetting. It can make us angry. And as Christians, we can find ourselves making excuses for it. We can look at it like a problem or a mistake that the New Testament came to sort out, to fix. But God didn't change nature or personality or character halfway through the Bible. We didn't get given a new one, wiping away the old one like an embarrassing, grumpy uncle. His nature is constant. Numbers 23, 19-20 states, God is not human that he should lie, not a human being that he should change his mind. Does he speak and then not act? Does he promise and not fulfill? The Testaments aren't in opposition with each other. They're not at war. There is a thread going between them that is unbroken. They are unfragmented. They cooperate with one another from the ground up. They have the same author. The law that was given to Moses for the Israelites points also to the ministry of Jesus and is a wonderful source of wisdom and ethics in our lives, back then and today. Both Testaments, new and old, affirm the idea that God deals with humanity in a manner that is very foreign to the way that us humans operate with one another. With God, the grace comes first. God's grace falls on Abraham who receives blessing beyond his human expectations. Before God gives the Israelites any laws, he saves them. He reminds them of these great and miraculous salvation that they experienced through God's power and care for them. He had redeemed their lives beyond any reasonable expectation. Remember, they were ruthlessly treated and oppressed slaves who then got to see their abusers judged for their actions and who found themselves the cherished nation of God. God was asking Israel to respond to the grace which had already been given. Nothing had been held back to coerce them into obedience. It was given whether or not they choose to follow afterwards. God built into the law a way back to him. When Moses gave the law, it can seem like there is a lot of instruction for what to do when one fails to obey the law correctly. This can seem like invented get-out clauses, which can expose the law as flawed, unusable, a failure of practicality. In Leviticus 16, verse 20 to 22, it reads, When Aaron had finished making atonement for the most holy place, the tent of meeting and the altar, he shall bring forwards the live goat, he is to lay both hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the wickedness and rebellion of the Israelites, all their sins, and put them on the goat's head. He shall send the goat away into the wilderness, into the care of someone appointed for that task. The goat will carry on itself all the sins, all their sins, to a remote place, and the man shall release it into the wilderness." What we can see in all of the laws regarding forgiveness of sins is a humbling and beautiful indication of God's heart for Israel and his understanding of their gloriousness. We're not looking at the failure of the law. We're looking at Israel's brokenness and God's willingness to still be their God. We can assume when looking at his law that he knew that the Israelites were not going to always be able to obey. They weren't always going to get it right. But God was giving them a way back into him. They were, he was giving them a way that they could reconnect, that they could go back to him. And we could see that he wanted them to know 
that he was always going to forgive them as long as they came to him. This isn't a vindictive God that we can see here. It shows an astounding patience. In this, we can see the hallmarks of God's tenderness. What is the shape of the law? What's it really all about? When you read the Old Testament, you can get so lost in the broken down, really strange parts of it that don't seem to have any real application to modern day. Where is God in that? And how are we meant to respond with those things that we don't do? Why don't we do them? What is the main gist of the law? Well, let's look into the Ten Commandments. Exodus 20, chapter, uh, chapter 20, verses 1 to 21. And God spoke all these words. There are a few. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God, for the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. And on it you shall not do any work, neither you nor your son or daughter, nor your male or female servant, nor your animals, nor any foreigner residing in your towns. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them. But he rested on the seventh day. And therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honour your father and mother so that you may live long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony against your neighbour. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male or female servant, nor his ox or donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbor. The Ten Commandments reveal something of the shape of the law. There are four things in the commandments about what we do for God, the honor that we give him, and the remaining six speak of how we treat the people around us, the others, God's other creatures that he made. When Jesus was asked which the most important commandment was out of these ten, he turned the question on its head and reframed it. He said there were not one, but two great commandments. These two things, love for God and love for his creatures, are a package deal. They come together. In this way, we can see that when somebody has an awful lot of respect for people around them who love people who serve them who care about the world and its creatures who care about honoring people but either rebel against God and hate him or don't believe he's there fail in the love the Lord your God category God deserves those things they fall short what about the religious hypocrite, the person who goes to church every Sunday, who does everything right, who has everything right, who never makes a misstep except is unkind to the people around them and doesn't really love people at all? 
they fall terribly short also. It's not that we're having heaped upon us the things that we must do to show love and it's just a list of things. You have to do this and you have to do that. You have to do this and you have to do that. It's more like fabric. Love for God and love for neighbour are like the up and down weave and the side to side weave. It's not fabric unless they are together. Each love is reflected in the other. Doubters and critics, people who read the Bible and just feel restricted and restrained by it, we've all had experiences of reading the Bible where it feels like it's weighing us down, it's impossible, it's difficult. Some of the things that it seems to be demanding that we do or that somebody does feel irrational and strange. I'd like to speak to what the Old Testament says about its own law that the law brings freedom. How can that be so? Surely freedom is the ability to do whatever it is that you want to do and have the power to do it. Isn't that freedom? Well, the Old Testament says in description that its laws are bringing joy, bringing freedom. But how is that so? Well, I want to use painting as a demonstration, uh, mainly because that's one of the things that I do, one of the things that I like to do. When a child sits down and is given all of the colours, you can see that they have this look of wonder on their face. They love looking at just all of the things that they could use to make this painting. They love colour. Kids are just so open to it. Well, you will often see kids get a big bowl or their stirring plate and they will pour all the different colours of paint into that tray willing to make the most amazing colour that they have ever seen. And they get the paintbrush and they don't just paint with the individual colours on the paper, they can't help but stir it. They stir it all up. They might be hoping for white, which people say is all the colours, or black, the deep, mysterious in, uh, fullness of pigment or absence of colour can be either. They might be hoping for swirls or rainbows. What they get, I have remembers, uh, I have memories of this experience, and I think other people do too. What you get is brown, and it's always the same brown. You mix up all the colours, you get nasty brown. Another example is oil painting. Uh, I don't know how many of you have actually puddled around with oil painting, except it's quite complicated when you begin. You have to start by using something to mix your paint, to make it more fluid so that you can paint with it. When it comes out of the tube, it's almost in a chunk, a block. It's hard to paint with. So you mix something in with it. But are you going to mix in terps or are you going to mix oil? If you mix terps or some kind of solvent in with your paint, you're going to get a thin layer or what they call a lean layer that dries very quickly. If you mix in oil, you're going to get what they call a fat layer, which dries very slowly. If you do not paint the lean layers first and then the fat, if you just do whatever you want with the materials, there's no one going to stop you. But all of the effort and beauty that you try and use in your painting is going to be all for nothing. Because either the painting will never dry, it will never come to fruition and it will be wasted and destroyed, or if it does dry, it will crack and tear itself apart. 
Oil painting can be annoying, the process can feel restrictive, but if you obey the rules, the only things you need to know about how to use the materials, how to form the work, you'll end up with the freedom to paint whatever thing you like and end up with a beautiful finished work that is rich and wonderful and what you hoped. Sure, you have the power to mix up the format, you can break the rules, but if you do, the paint might not dry, it may crack. The freedom that comes from the law is more like the freedom to be what we were designed to be. The fullest, most beautiful and most invigorating expression of our true selves. Once the rules and the understanding of how it all works is out of the way, painting in oils doesn't feel restrictive. It feels like flying. It's amazing. So let's talk about the parts of the Old Testament that we don't do anymore. The laws of Moses that are not the same as the ones that Jesus came to bring. The ones that feel like they come from a meaner, angrier God. What about them? Where do they fit? Skeptics often use these instances, these parts of the Old Testament that confuse or upset us, as the reason to write off the Bible completely, to write off Christians and call us fools for believing the good parts and leaving behind the bad. Is that what we're doing? Are we just trying to please morals of today by forgetting those other things and sweeping them under the rug? No. The truth is that the Old Testament speaks about the covenant, the new covenant agreement which would one day come and eclipse the old. Moses speaks of another Moses-like person to come. And Jeremiah puts it this way. Jeremiah 31, 31 to 34. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. It will not be like the old covenant when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt because they broke my covenant, though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, know the Lord, because they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their wickedness and I will remember their sins no more. The Old Testament points to a new time to come where God would bring a new way. The writers of the New Testament identified Jesus as the one that was waited for. They see him as the bringer of the new way, the new agreement. Jesus didn't come to turn over the old law, but to fulfill it, bringing to pass the foreshadowing of his grace. We read the Old Testament through the prism of Jesus. This is a prism. The light is like the old law. When you see the light passing through the prism, I don't know if you can see it, you might just be able to see a bit of sparkle, but I can see rainbows every now and then coming up. Jesus hasn't changed the nature of God. He's actually made more known. We know more than Moses and the Israelites did through Jesus, God's son. The old law of Moses passes through the prism of Jesus and refracts the light into living colour, changing, intensifying some parts and revealing God's heart, revealing the law and fulfilling it. 
It is the same light, but God has been known through Jesus, made known through Jesus in such a way that in retrospect, it reveals a new way to read and see the Old Testament, shining in the light of God revealed through his Son. Since the New Testament was written, this is the way that Christians have read the Bible. The Old Testament itself declares that it would one day be read in this way. There are still hard parts of the Old Testament, parts that are easy to become confused over, and there are some things that don't have easy answers. But I will say this. In these days, our government is trying really hard to look after us. We have a whole lot of restrictions over us that are difficult, unpleasant, and have led to great hardship in a lot of people's lives. One day I hope that a vaccine will come along that will give us our liberty back again. And when, and I do believe that will happen, of course, and when that happens, we can look back and think, wow, that 2020 government was insane. It was terrible. Look how they treated its people. And this wouldn't be a very good picture of what was really happening. We can know through Jesus that where there is uncertainty about details, there is certainty about the nature of God. Christ died for us when we were still sinners. God demonstrates his love for us in this. Paul says in Romans 5, verse 7 to 8. <laughs> it was meant to be in my notes, but I haven't written it. Never mind. Look up Romans 5, 7 to 8. God is our deliverer. Ask him for deliverance if you need it. Respond to him when he gives us grace. So what do I want you to do with what I've been talking about, with the new prism that we see the Bible through? God loved the Israelites. He gave them away. When Jesus came, he gave us all something infinitely more magnificent that the Old Testament was eagerly waiting for. We are so, so amazingly blessed by what Jesus did for us. He is our deliverer. Just like the Israelites when they came out of Egypt, Jesus has brought us into a new place. What I would like you to do with this information is to go back to the Old Testament, looking at every part of it through the prism of Jesus and also looking out for God's grace for his people. When did somebody receive grace? When did somebody receive a blessing that they never really earned? The Bible is saturated in these stories, and I want you to start looking at that. God doesn't hold anything over us. He's not trying to force us or coerce us. He's not an angry person that we have to please until finally he will give us a reward and relieve us of our suffering. God is tender and he is good. I want you to think about your own life. Do you need a deliverer? Do you need someone to come through for you and bring something that you don't know how you're going to receive? I want you to call out to God, just like the Israelites did. I want you to call out to Jesus, who gave everything for us on the cross so that we could have that right. And I want you to ask for that grace that he gives freely. When you cry out to it, I want you to think about what your response is. Not out of trying to be a good person or a good Christian or having to pay somehow for what we've been given, but out of a love response 
for the God who has given us everything freely, who's held nothing back out of contempt for us, even though we have rebelled so badly throughout the history of the Bible. He loves us. He loves you. So what I want to talk about last is honesty boxes on the side of the road. When you drive through farmland, sometimes you see the most abundant, beautiful things just in a box waiting to be collected with a slot next to it where you can pay. Now, I'm not suggesting that we pay for God's blessings. Please hear me in this. What I'm suggesting is that when you pick up something absolutely delicious and amazing, like you know the most beautiful cherries that you can imagine, you don't have to pay. You can keep driving. No one's going to chase after you. But why would you want to? When so much abundance is given to us, why wouldn't we want to partner in the creation of so much good? Now, we don't help God do what he does. He does it on his own. But he loves us. He wants to bring us into his family. And we have the opportunity to respond to him, not just with obeying the laws that they used to in the Old Testament, but by giving everything, offering ourselves as a living sacrifice. We have the joy of trying to creatively think of any way that we can respond in love to God. We've been given that freedom. And so I want to invite you, wherever you are, to just pray with me. Father God, thank you for the blessings that you've heaped upon us. Thank you for the grace that you offered us that we didn't have to earn or perform for. Lord, I pray that you would touch our hearts and that we would respond in love to you, Lord, that you would be with us so tangibly that we would feel you in our hearts and that we would know how to respond in our lives as children of 